you're listening to Tiger Country, because sometimes you want a better view than the one you can get from being behind the knife. Sometimes you want your conversations to be more audible than the bleeding. Join Milos Bahavitz, Joan Bowes, and me, Rishi Kundi, as we talk to our guests about trauma surgery, critical care, powerboating, cats, mandolin, croissants, cats, TV shows, cats, and steak. All right, well, welcome back, everybody, to this week's episode of uh, Tiger Country. As always, I'm joined by uh, Dr. Joe DeBose. Uh, unfortunately, Dr. Rishi Kundi could not make it this week, and we have the honor of having Dr. Kevin Schuster with us this week to talk about a subject that is near and dear to everybody in acute care surgery. Uh, the gallbladder. Uh, so welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Um, I think it's going to be a nice conversation. Uh, we, we hope so. Um, you know, we love, we love our uh, quotes here on uh, Tiger Country. Dr. DeBose is usually the one dishing out the, uh, the quotes and the knowledge. And as we were writing the questions for this episode, for whatever reason, Austin Powers popped into my head. Um, you know, the first movie, he says he's only afraid of two things. And for me, those two things are um, complex, uh, blunt and penetrating trauma and the gallbladder. So in your esteemed opinion, what is what is a challenging gallbladder? What is a bad gallbladder? Well, I can tell you my experience from earlier today. I had the fortune of taking out a gallbladder one of my uh, new partners put in, put in a cholecystostomy too about six weeks ago and the guy got it changed and he had all this pain. I think it was rubbing against one of his intercostals um, when they did the tube change. So he did a stat, um, you know, delayed cholecystectomy um, and uh, it was with a PGY3 plastic surgery resident, which made it uh, ultra special and uh so it was an old fibrosed gallbladder um, six weeks after acute cholecystitis. Um, and it was, and those are never easy. So I think those, that is, uh, you know, more than anything, I think the, the, that and probably the older males have the worst gallbladders. So if you're taking one out in a delayed fashion with a previous cholecystostomy, um, or if the, or just in general, older males, and this was, this gentleman was both. And so, um, those are, I think far and away the, the worst gall, when you expect it to be a, a pretty terrible gallbladder. The other things I would say, I mean, it, it, I, the other things that make me, you know, the other surprises you can get into are when you have an unsuspected fistula to, um, either the colon or the duodenum, those are, uh, also particularly uh, challenging. Um, and then once in a great while you see uh, what is a remnant cholecystitis when you, somebody who did a partial cholecystectomy in the past and now you have recurrent cholecystitis and a little nubbin of gallbladder. Um, those are also uh, pretty challenging. They're fortunately all of these situations except for the cholecystostomy tube are fairly rare, um, but those are definitely the I think the toughest situations. 
Yeah, nothing can make a bad day like a bad gallbladder, that's for sure. Um, Kevin, you know, timing is always a topic that it, it leaks into the conversation with gallbladders a bit. Um, obviously, we'd love to get some, we make the diagnosis, we would take somebody upstairs uh, if given the chance in a lot of instances. But um, what about these bad gallbladders? You know, right? So you get one of these that is an elderly male, had prior colostomy tube. Um, what, what, what's your trick uh, and tips uh, for preparation and, and picking your timing to intercept? Yeah, timing is uh, an interesting idea. I mean, I think timing, for me, that's why I like doing these acutely. So I almost, um, you know, will almost always try and do them. Uh, or, or the earlier, the better. I think timing, you think of two things. You, you think when you think of cholecystitis, you think, do we do it at three in the morning if you have to, or do you do it at, you know, that's that's a question we answered or tried to answer a while ago in a, in a bigger study. And, you know, the folks from your neck of the woods down there in uh, Texas and uh, UT Southwestern have published a few papers on this that seem to suggest you can take a gallbladder out at any point in time. But I just, in my mind, there's probably a significant selection bias there because you, you may not, you may be surprised sometimes, but it's a good bet, you know, uh, ahead of time that one of gallbladder is not going to be so easy. And I bet a lot of those, the, those really tough ones are probably pushed off till um, the daylight hours. So, you know, I think doing them soon and then, and then that sort of brings up the other question of, you know, if you're delaying by a day, um, because, you know, you're not doing it at three in the morning or, you know, the ORs couldn't get you in or whatever the reason, you know, people always say, well, you know, how many days uh, until you say you're going to put a cholecystosomy tube? Is there some point in time, you know, in terms of timing, if the patient's been, had pain for three days, five days, seven days, do you still take the gallbladder out? And that's like, that's another interesting question that I don't think we know the exact answer to. Um, personally, I like to just operate on them. Um, and because I like just like today, the, the patient is so nasty a lot of times when you go back in at six, seven weeks. Um, and the, you know, we know complications go up. So you get out beyond five, you know, three to five to certainly five or six days. And the, we know the complications go up. What we don't know is what we don't is that is what if you wait? What if you put them on antibiotics and they get better and you do it again, do it in six or seven weeks? Is it is it any better to do it then? Are the complications any any better? My guess is probably not, but that's that's an that's an unanswered question. So um, I would say if you can do it, you can. So the timing question, I'll answer it in two ways. One, you can do them at three in the morning if it's not a bit if you don't anticipate a bad gallbladder, um, and then you can probably do it early, no matter how long they've been there but we don't know the answer for certain. That's kind of my general answer. I hope that's what you're looking for. Yeah, no, I, I think, what about the bad ones, Kevin? So the ones that come in and, and you know, they've oh, I've had this right upper quadrant pain for two weeks. He's a, he's the, he's the Hispanic elderly male who doesn't complain much. And, you know, what do you, does that influence your thinking any, or do you just put them, put them on the board? Let's get to them when we can. I think it does in the sense that a lot of my partners will say, you know, let's wait and let's not do that. Let's do it down the road. I'm, I'm fairly firmly on in the, in the camp of just to do it and get it done. Um, it's going to be bad no matter when you do it. And I personally 
would rather do it when it's acutely inflamed than when it's chronically all woody and and scarred um like i said i'm not that's not a universal opinion for sure um, but that's the way i chose i like to do it well let's talk you just talked about the case that you had that a partner put a, a percutaneous cholecystostomy tube in um you know uh, it seems to me there's been a pendulum with the utilization of cholecystostomy tubes at least if you look in the literature people talked about them for a while they certainly have their place uh in 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 the treatment of biliary disease but what um how do you decide when somebody gets an operation versus a tube in, in your in your hands yeah i think they have to be pretty darn sick you know the the I think the big answer that we sort of answered this question, or we not we, but the the bigger we of surgeons, um, the chocolate trial, I think everybody's familiar with is was a, a big step towards answering that question. Now they randomized, I actually looked this up today knowing this was coming. Um, they randomized the patients they randomized were with an Apache two score between seven and fifteen. And so fifteen's pretty, pretty sick. Um, you know, so, and I'll, you know, my sort of cutoff is the ICU because everybody kind of looks at you kind of askance when you're bringing somebody from the ICU on pressors or, um, you know, needing to be in the ICU for some particular reason, certainly mechanically, ventilated. if they're that sick, those patients probably, uh, those patients I will delay on. So they'll get a tube most likely, um, when they're truly too sick for general anesthesia or when general anesthesia is going to be, you know, a significant impact on them. But even even some some occasionally I'll do it. Like somebody's on a very low dose suppressor, or you know maybe they're on a little bit of oxygen in their ICU, but they're awake and alert and, and you know talking. And um, those patients I'll actually operate on sometimes. Um, but usually the sort of entry into the ICU is is for the most part my boundary uh, for placing a cholecystostomy tube versus operating on them. And then there's the truly, really medically, chronically ill patient who you're never going to operate on. And so it's not so much the timing, it's so much the, uh, you know, the never operate. Um, and so they, you know, those are those patients we try and manage with uh, uh, antibiotics alone because we don't want to have to have them have a tube in them. And then, our, you know, our GI colleagues have, you know, stepped up with, or I don't know, stepped up, but, you know, they like to put these axio stents in everywhere. And now, that they stick these things between the duodenum and the gallbladder. That's another nice out for the 95 year old with severe MR and um, yeah. you know, another and a bunch of other uh, cardiac problems or whatever their comorbidities are. Um, you just drain the gallbladder into the duodenum if they're anatomically appropriate for that. And that's a good destination therapy. Yeah, well, let's say, you know, uh Let's take maybe perhaps someone who's not quite so extreme. Is some this is you've got a guy on the floor who's uh, or in the ER who's coming in with again that like two weeks or three weeks or a month of nagging pain. He's not particularly sick, but the ER has been kind enough to get a CT scan and it looks pretty nasty. It's all inflamed and uh, stuck in. There may be uh, you know a pericolic abscess, pericolcystic abscess, whatever the situation may be. My question is always, gee, I always start laparoscopic. I, I I have a tendency to always stick a scope in and kind of, if you can safely and see what you got. Is there ever a situation where you wouldn't or you would modify your laparoscopic approach? You know, what what give us some guidance from your expertise about uh, should we always stick the scope in first, or does it make sense sometimes to just go straight to open? 
I think gallbladder surgery, like any kind of major abdominal catastrophe, I think the, you never know what you're going to, life is, you know, this is the forest gump of, of uh, the surgical world. Is there anything inflammatory in the abdomen? It's definitely life is a, it's a box of chocolates and you never know what you're going to get. So, you, you know, there, there are times when um, probably more for diverticulitis than, than uh, cholecystitis, but you put the scope in, you're like, ah, or you, or you don't put the scope and you do a laparotomy, you're like, oh, we could have easily done this laparoscopically. And yeah. uh, so you never know what you're going to find. So I, I don't think there's ever rarely a downside. I mean, you would put your scope in and, and, you know, bad ileus is the one contraindication, I think, for for most uh, laparoscopic procedures in acute care surgery. So in the small intestine, so dilated, you have zero working room. Um, you can convert, but it's so easy to convert uh early. So I, I'm pretty much, uh, I'm in the camp of always put a scope in first and, and figure out what you got. And if you find something, it's just not doable. You, then you convert super easy. You know, one of the things that I struggle with, I see young part, younger partners sometimes, and I've caught been, been caught in this. We all have at times ourselves. Uh, how long do you struggle with laparoscopy before you realize that, okay, this is just is an open procedure. Sometimes you can look right away, but I never know how to coach my younger partners kind of walking into the room and you know, they're not going to be able to get this done laparoscopic. And three hours later, they're taking the open tray in the room. What, what would you, what do you tell people about and give them advice when they're learning how to do young attendings, learning how to do laparoscopic cholecystectomy about that? When, when does that frame shift, that threshold to convert to open occur in your mind? Yeah, I think it's really hard because especially younger surgeons. And, uh, you know, it's funny, I've helped younger partners um, with open cholecystectomies, you know, they call and they say, you know, I've, I converted to open, you know, even before, even though they call later, they call after you've, after they've converted and they're, and they're struggling and you walk in and you like stick your hand in it and muck, muck around a bunch. And all of a sudden things pop up and you're like, oh, I feel the cystic duct down here or whatever. And oh, I just you smash a bunch of adhesions just by sticking your hand in. And all of a sudden things are, you know, it's a five minute operation and they were gonna be there another two hours doing it open. Um, so, you know, I, I wonder, and my, even myself, even I, you know, have done so few open cholecystectomies in the last 10 years that you know, I'm, I'm willing to struggle for quite some time. I, I would say that the, you know, you should have laparoscopic bailouts. Um, I have a heart, you know, when you, when you do open, you actually lose a lot. You only see from one view and you, and unless you're wearing loops, your magnification is much less. Um, and so you're actually sacrificing, I think, when you convert to open. Um, and sometimes there are definitely good times to do that, to convert to open, but I think they're relatively few. And if you can do a, I'm not, I'm not a big fan of partial cholecystectomies, but a fenestrated cholecystectomy. Um, if you can, you know, it's a pain because you got to clean up all the stones and the big mess after you're done. Um, but it, I think that's a nice bailout maneuver. If you're not used to doing open, you're not, you're going to struggle just as much open, or there's a good chance you're going to struggle just as much when you open, if you haven't done a lot. Um, so I'm for, especially for the younger folks, I, I, I think it's okay that they struggle for a while, but I would, I, yeah, definitely advocate for having some bailout in the back of their mind that they can do laparoscopically. 
Yeah, I'm not as facile as you. I'm a knuckle dragging trauma vascular guy, right? So I have a tendency to to probably go open a little earlier sometimes. But uh, and you know, it's, it's crazy now. You know, it's this an open cocosystectomy is an event. You know, it's suddenly there's four residents in the room to see it done. You know, it's like it feels to me like it's the old illustrations where you have all the people in the balconies watching you <laughs> operate when you have an open cocosystectomy. The modern era, it's kind of interesting. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely it is it is an event, but Lee, like I said, I I probably do more helping junior partners once they've opened than uh, than anything else in in my practice anyway. Yeah. So talk to me about that. You mentioned bailouts a little bit and the fenestrated. I've never done a, personally done a fenestrated. Um, what give me some laparoscopic bailouts to avoid the open? What's your go to and and kind of your steps and thought process? Yeah, I think the fenestrate is, is the best, in my opinion, the best choice. If you can get around the gallbladder um, somewhere up a little bit higher and, and can take it down, the, the, the real trouble, I think, you know, I, every common bowel injury that I've either been aware of, uh, talked to the surgeon about, um, I have one myself. Um, they've all been the same scenario. And that's this, the hepatic duct is just plastered to the gallbladder and you can't separate yeah. them. They're inseparable. And so the fenestrated, you're going to not injure that. If you don't take the, that wall of the gallbladder, it's attached to the hepatic duct. You're, you're still not going to injure the, the common duct or the hepatic duct. And so if you can, if you're confident, you know what the gallbladder is, which I think is probably at, at some point up as you go up the gallbladder up towards the fundus you know you're nearly 100 percent confident that that is the gallbladder you can cut a hole in it and you can take it you know take it back to the liver and then you can start working your way back down and opening it slowly um and you can look inside and figure out when you're getting close to the infundibulum and you can't always find the cystic duct. Everybody says, oh, you just oversaw the cystic duct orifice. Well, that's not, it's not always that. So that, that just, it looks, the gallbladder looks just as bad on the inside as it does on the outside. It's a freaking mess. Yeah. Um, and so you can hopefully find the cystic duct orifice and put a stitch in it. Um, but if you can't, or if you're not, if you're not a, somebody who sews a lot laparoscopically, um, you may not be facile with doing that. Um, and so a little tougher, but you can just put a drain in. Um, and as long as the patient's a candidate for an ERCP, uh, you can leave a drain and drain it. Even if they're not, the drain will stop eventually, or the cystic duct is likely occluded and they may never drain anything. So there's lots of possible outcomes, but if it does drain and it keeps draining bile for a, a couple of days and it's draining a fair amount, then you just have the GI guys, uh, or if you have surgeons that do it or whoever does it, put, you know, stent the common stent, the sphincter and, you know, that leakage will stop in a day or two and you, know, you pull the drain a couple of days later and you know they get their stent pulled a couple of weeks later so it's not ideal but it's the patient does fine and you know no worse for the wear so you know i can imagine some of the places i've been before i've been in a lot of places in my military correct there's always these gray hairs in the back there why didn't you just convert to open what's all this part stuff give me what if you were the visiting professor what would you say to that person about the fenestrated versus why don't you just convert to open well i think just converting to open doesn't doesn't mean especially like i said in those cases where the cystic the hepatic duct is plastered to the gallbladder um you know the one of the 
common duct injuries in our institution not too too long ago with someone they did convert to open and they still cut the common duct um or they cut that pack because it was just plastered um and so uh i don't know like i said i think you get you don't you take something away and you take a lot of the skills that a junior surgeon has um, their skills are laparoscopic and, and by converting to open you take a lot of their skills away um like i said i i think and a, and a fenestrated or partial um are uh possible and i'll tell you the one my one common bile duct injury was young earlier in my career and i convert we converted to open and we were taking the gallbladder down um actually i shouldn't say that no we weren't hadn't converted to open yet we were still laparoscopic and i decided to take the gallbladder down uh top down laparoscopically which actually if you read the safe cholecystectomy guidelines they say don't ever do that um now it's again it's against teaching and i found out why because we coming down the um behind the gallbladder is a shriveled up little gallbladder and eventually as we were coming down behind it you know all of a sudden bile starts pouring out um and we figured out pretty quickly we just cut the, the paddock duct so um yeah so I, anyway i guess the you know the answer to the the gray hair is is my same answer is that you just you're taking skills away from people that, um, from what people are used to. And you can always, you can, but the same bailout maneuvers are available. So if you do choose to convert to open, you still need to think about, you know, can I do a fenestrated? Um, yeah. You can still do the same, the same thing if it's, if it's, uh, if you can't do that dissection in the, in the infundibulum. Yeah, I think in the right hand, you can, you're doing the same thing as you did open and you're avoiding the big incision. I, I, I get it. I, I don't, I admittedly, I'm not as, uh, I, I probably punch out to open a bit more than I, I should, but I'm not as good as some of my younger partners laparoscopically. So, um, yeah. Yeah, there's no, and there's no downside to converting. I mean, you convert to open, like I say, you can do the same thing. You do laparoscopically yeah. and do a fenestrate. You can do, you know, and you got you and someone who's done it a bunch, um, you can put your fingers in there and you can, you know what you're feeling. Um, and that's yeah. something you gain by opening that you don't have laparoscopically. And that's, that's, you know, perfect for if you're used to doing that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if there's a, there's a right or wrong answer. Everything that I'm aware of in the literature doesn't say that one answer is, is wrong over another. I have some colleagues that do all their gallbladders robotically. So they 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 bypass the laparoscopic approach. They they attach that spider to the patient, and that thing, I don't know how, but it it, it makes its way out. Um, another thing, when I think of some of these challenging gallbladders, especially in this day and age, is it, patients on anticoagulation. Just like you mentioned, some of these elderly patients are coming in with multiple medical comorbidities. They're not quite sick enough that you can justify delaying them, but they take Eliquis, they're on aspirin, they're on, they're on something, and they're having significant pain from a gallbladder. Do you have any advice? What do you do when you encounter these patients on anticoagulation? Well, it depends what they're on. I've really gained comfort in the patients that are on DOAX. They're, they're, the bleeding problems are so much less. Um, and Certainly, if you can't, I mean, unless there's really no, not there aren't too many scenarios where not delaying by 48 hours in the gallbladder is, is is such a horrible thing, and so I think the DOAC patients are nice. You just wait at least 24 hours, if not 48 hours, ideally. 
I suppose if they're on like aspirin, Plavix, Anadoac, you might, you know, you're probably going to wait a little bit longer. Um, but if they're just on a DOAC, you know, I'll operate on those patients in 24 hours. Because um, we do have all kinds of other procedures on them right away. Uh, if they need an emergency operation, I rarely, if ever, reverse them. And, um, you know, they, they don't do, they, I've never had a, a bleeding problem, you know, knock on whatever. They're still early, but in my experience. But, and then, you know, the aspirin and Plavix patients, they're the worst. Um, they bleed. But a cholecystectomy is, you know, even in the worst of the worst of the worst, bleeding is a pain, but it's it's rarely a problem. If you if you get too deep in the gallbladder fossa and you put a hole in the middle of hepatic vein, it doesn't matter if they're on aspirin and plavix or not. Um, and they the you know the um, corollary if they're if you don't get into the middle of hepatic vein and you just do a cholecystectomy, it's going to bleed. It'll be a bloody mess, but the bleeding that bleeding stops. Um, so I think uh, I, I think the ones on on anticoagulation. I think you just take you just take your time, be careful, um, and they'll be okay. And if you can delay, and if it's a DOAC, you can delay for forty eight hours. And if it's a uh, you know if it's warfarin, you can reverse them. If it's um, you know, and if it's anoxaparin, uh, uh, you you know they also goes away pretty quickly. Yeah, let's uh, let me let me ask you now about uh, intraoperative cholangiograms. So I know you know our gastro gastroenterology colleagues and and surgical input uh, for that as well in terms of who we select for that. What do you guys? What do you use as your criteria for selecting who needs an intraoperative cholangiogram based you know based upon the different guidelines that are out there? Yeah, I think you know the one the the big indicator the where there's stones are where common duct stones are highly probable is, is, you know, bilirubin over four, you know, so if your totally bilirubin hits four, that's a good, a uh, pretty powerful predictor of convalescence. stones. Outside of that, it's really hard to, on labs and preoperative imaging on a dilated compound. If it's really, you know, clearly dilated, um, that's the other major predictor. So those are the two times I'll do it. And it depends how people choose to approach this. You know, it's in some places they do, um, you know, they'll get the MRCP. And so they have a pretty good, you know, the high, high predictive probability of whether there's a stone there or not. And then ERCP pre-op other places, you know, we're kind of a mix. Sometimes we'll do that, take that approach. And other times we'll just do an intraoperative cholangiogram. Certainly intraoperative cholangiogram helps when you're not sure of anatomy, but you think you've got the cystic duct. Um, it can be helpful there. I think a low threshold for doing them is, is good. And the reason I say that is because it helps, you want to have the skills when you need them. And a lot of, and I think it's a skill that a lot of folks don't necessarily have, um, or, or it's a big production when they do. Um, if you do them fairly frequently, you don't have to do them on every gallbladder, but the more you do them, the better you are at it. And the, you know, instead of it being a 45 minute or an hour extra amount of time, it's only a you know, 10 or 15 minutes are used to it. You, they, the nurses are all used to the equipment you use. Um, I'm a big fan of uh, one-stop shopping and just in laparoscopic common duct exploration. So, you know, you just do the cholangiogram. If it's positive, you take the stone out and, and you're done. The patient's done. They don't need anything else. So, um, and if, and that's, and it's a good stepping stone to that. So if you're, 
thinking about doing or starting common duct explorations and you don't have a lot of experience, it's a good first step to be pretty facile at the, at the um, glandiogram first before you take the next step. So there's, you know, the common, the common bile duct exploration encompasses, a, you know, a couple of different pieces of the toolkit, right? And I, I think the theme here that we've talked about is if you have the skill set, use it. But for people who want to develop the skill set, you know, you've got camera, you've got lights, camera action, right? You've got literally, uh, you know, a camera you can use. People have talked about wires and baskets, balloon. I, I have a good friend in North Carolina who's trying to convince me the way to go about doing business is to use an, a vascular balloon, which looks familiar to me, and go back and go in and uh, basically do your sphincterotomy using that, uh, use in that fashion. What's, what's, what's your, what do you think is the role for all those different tools in the modern era? And if you were telling someone to develop the, the one or two things that, that would be served them the most for common bile duct expiration moving forward in the future, what would be the skill sets? I think the, you know, I think they're the, the big, separation between common duct exploration is in whether it's a transcystic or whether it's um, a, a, a ductotomy, um, a cholidocotomy. Um, and that is, you know, I think you have to have a big duct um, centimeter at least because you want to be able to close it without having to put in a, a T-tube. Um, I think that's the biggest thing now. You can't even get T-tubes anymore. Um, and so, you want to be able to close it primarily and there aren't a lot and i don't even have those you know those skills um so i would say that i if i had to do a choidocotomy i might you know pass if i had the option of having being able to ercp that patient fortunately that that doesn't happen um that often and it's interesting that you know the guys the what guys from wake who is that where you're yeah, your yeah. from yeah so they they They've sort of, I don't know, pioneered. I thought about this a long time ago. You know, I, I was thinking about this and then, you know, um, and then I saw the paper. I was like, damn, these guys beat me, you know, <laughs> by uh, a few months. Um, the, but it is, it is something I have not tried yet. Uh, and the reason that you know, I hadn't tried it was because if you read the GI literature, they, they, they do needle sphincterotomies, needle nice sphincterotomies because uh, balloon sphincterotomies had a high, much higher rate of pancreatitis. And so that's why they don't do them. Um, and so that always, that kind of scared me a little bit. Now they've had some pretty good results. And so I think it's, I think it's a, um, it's a nice technique. It's faster. And that's the biggest thing I think with it is that it's, it's easy to do it because you're going to put the wire in and you're probably going to dilate anyway. You're going to slide a balloon in to dilate the cystic duct a little bit to get your camera in, at least in my practice, most cases. So under flora, you just slide the, the um, balloon down a little bit further into the cross the sphincter and balloon dilate and then flush all the stones out. So it, And that's a hell of a lot faster. Yeah. Um, pushing out each individual stone. I mean, I should say I've never done it, but I imagine it's got to be faster. Um, cause you fishing, if you've got two or especially if you've got more than one stone, cause if you've got two or three, uh, go in, find the stone then you know, get it in the basket, pull it out. It takes, uh, definitely, it's definitely faster if you just do it in one fell swoop. Yeah. If you don't, uh, dilate up the sphincter, do you give anything to relax? What pharmacologically do you believe in relaxing the sphincter? I use glucagon. I think most yeah. people do. I mean, yeah. I think that and I use two milligrams. A lot of people use one. I use two. And the other thing is I think people use it, you know, are very quick and 
and think, oh, well, I'm going to give it. And then if it doesn't go in, in like 30 seconds or a minute, then it's not working. Um, but if you wait a good five minutes, um, it takes, actually takes time for, in my opinion, for the glucagon to work. So I've had, you know, I've definitely had the experience where I've been like, oh crap, it's not working. And then, uh, you try again in a few minutes later, and then all of a sudden everything just flushes through. So, um, that's my, uh, I don't know if it's really pearl of wisdom or not, but it's, you know, certainly the experience I've had. Yeah, okay. it's, it's fascinating. I think it's what, it's a skill set that we need to continue to keep, you know, alive in our trainees, but it's a lot of people fall back to ERCPs. So, um, and we've tried here, we don't do much in the way of common bile. I couldn't even find much of that stuff anymore if you wanted to on the shelf. Um, I, we've thought about doing the balloon angioplasty or it's not an angioplasty either. It's a sphincterotomy. See, I've fallen back to my vascular roots. But the um, ERCP is our methodology and we we try like hell to get it done the same day, but it just doesn't always work very well. Do you have any, how do you build that relationship with your GI docs or create a pathway where it's, it's seamless? Yeah, that's a really tough one because they're busy too. And they're, uh, yeah. and to say, oh, why don't you just come up to the operating room and do this quick ERCP while the patient's asleep? Um, you know, we've had, we have done that a couple of times, um, but it hasn't, you know, it's hard to make it work on a, on a regular basis. And we have a good relationship with our GI guys, um, a really good relationship. Um, and so it's just really tough to schedule. They don't like working, uh, all, you know, they schedule most of their stuff or they like doing the add-ons at the end of the day and whatnot. I don't know. That's a, that's a great question. Um, that's why we went to laparoscopic common bile duct. And I could, I would say, you know, I'm not an industry. I, I get no money from anybody. Um, you know, my, uh, you know, I will pass in terms of the, uh, if you check my, um, uh, what's it called? The, uh, uh my website, yeah. yeah, the, the, uh, sunshine act website. Um, but, uh, you know, the disposable common duct scopes are so easy to use and they're, and, um, so I think you just do them. And if you start doing them, you'll become facile at it pretty quickly. Um, they're not, it's not that, it's not a huge, you don't have to be a technical expert or anything by any stretch of the imagination. They're very easy to use. And, and like you said, if you get used to, hey, your vascular surgeon used to pushing wires and, and balloons into small tubes, it's the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Different, but different. Different, but the same. Tubes and tubes, it's, it's, the, it's the way of the future. Um, I, I recently had a, a case, young lady, gallbladder was angry. I had a, a rising four in there. I thought he did a fantastic job, critical view, a real critical view, not a, not a yeah, let's just get this done, critical view. And the lady came back uh, five days later with a bilirubin of eight, and she was jaundiced and my heart sank and I thought, oh no, what have I done? She ended up just having a stone that we hadn't recognized on initial presentation, that thing passed and, and we, we got away with it. But I'm, I'm dreading the eventual day uh, that it may come when I injure a common bile duct and I recognize it in the operating room and I don't have someone like yourself or somebody there to bail me out. What do young surgeons like myself do when we when we see it when we do it 
any any you've already given us plenty of pearls on on how to avoid it but what do we do when that happens well i think you call you call friends like you said and like you said you, you know you call experienced people i don't i wouldn't you know i mean I, the thing about fixing compound that's it's not that hard it's so in tubes together and joe would probably be you know great at it because he's used to sewing small tubes together um so i don't think it's the problem you know everybody talks about getting a, a hepatobiliary surgeon or a transplant surgeon to come do it and the, i think my personal guess is that it you're it doesn't work out as well as because you're like you're not in the best shape to be doing putting tubes together when you just know you've cut the common duct nobody's in it nobody's in the state of mind to you know do a technically challenging operation in that situation so you definitely need help um even if you even if you don't have uh um a palatability or you know call another general surgeon and, and just take a look at it and you know sort of come up with a plan drains are great drains you know can bail any biliary problem out if you don't have a a major vascular injury you know drains will will get the patient through to wherever they need to get to even if it's a thousand miles away um a well-drained patient doesn't you know will be fine until uh until they get to the the transplant center or the major hepatobiliary center um to get a formal repair you know tag the you know it's you know you can if you can tag it in some way uh to help the surgeon identify you know put a you know small proline in the in the hole um because once it's inflamed and you know going back in even 48 hours later it's it's a kind of a mess um so you know i haven't you know we i don't know how it depends everybody probably does it differently but we're the kind of the take it all uh surgeons in our place and so when somebody calls and says i've got this common bile duct injury we just say sure send it down even though we're not going to be the ones to fix it um we're the uh, so we get to um sort of be sort of peripherally involved in these patients a lot of times and you know i'll go to the operating room uh the next day with the palatability guys and take a quick take a look at it at least and and see what they're doing and see how they're approaching it and i can tell you these patients if they're more than 24 hours out or they're a mess um which is why they like to i think why in some cases they'll delay it until for six weeks well for for our for our younger listeners you you heard it here first on tiger country you need to give yourselves a little bit of grace when bad things happen before you beat yourself up straight straight from the horse's mouth there from dr schuster um okay last last question for me and and something that we discuss here a lot because we get a lot of these patients that have bad biliary pancreatitis um and and gallbladders that on ct scan look angry you know that there's there's plenty of literature out there saying that in an ideal world you want to take a gallbladder out before that patient leaves there's there's more literature suggesting despite that recommendation the majority of institutions don't necessarily follow that because it might not be a feasible thing what what where do you fall on this topic should we be taking these gallbladders out uh, when there's bad pancreatitis how much pancreatitis is bad pancreatitis can you give us some insight how to navigate this problem yeah i think as it's as long as it's not necrotizing pancreatitis i think as long as it's just interstitial pancreatitis i think you're okay um you've got a lot of inflammation it's, in, it's kind of a mess 
but it's just like a bad cholecystitis. Um, and a lot, of, and they're usually, the, the adhesions aren't too, too bad. Now, if they've got necrotizing pancreatitis, it has a lot to do with where it is, in my opinion. Uh, if it's in the head of the pancreas, you probably want to wait. Uh, or, you know, in t and that, the, you know, the Dutch pancreatitis study group is really, you know, published a little bit on this and, and then, and, and delaying is sort of a, there's like this sweet spot of a few weeks seems to be the time to, to operate in those patients that are necrotizing and, um, you know, you're delaying the cholecystectomy, but you only want to delay a few weeks. Um, yeah, cause then the complications start to really go up again and recurrent, uh, recurrent disease. Um, and it, or if it's in the tail of the pancreas, if it's necrotizing, then it's no brainer, you know, cause the pancreas is very, um, the head is either just acutely inflamed or not inflamed at all. And it's not a big deal. Um, so I think the location matters in necrotizing and for interstitial pancreatitis, I think you'd always take the, almost always take the gallbladder out. I'm sure that, you know, you can come up with some set of circumstances where it might not be the best idea, but in general, I think interstitial pancreatitis, just take it out before they go. Well, Kevin, thanks so much. Uh, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. Um, uh, for those in the uh, audience and the listening viewership, if you ever get a chance to work with Kevin Schuster, I've worked with him now on the AAST multi-center committee for a while and then other things, say yes, because he's very thoughtful and he, uh, he, he's just a great people person to work with. But we, we always close, Kevin, with, um, with our random questions. And sometimes I, I tease people about different variety of different things. We had a great time with Marty Schreiber, who's very teasable, last on the last podcast. But I'm gonna keep yours a little more straight uh, forward and, and so we can people can get to know a little bit more about you. One of the things, you have a degree in electrical engineering, right? Is that, that's correct? That's, that's true. Started. So we have a couple of, I, I've always found, we have two residents now that come from similar engineering backgrounds. First of all, one, how do you get, in my college, uh, the engineering department, EE stood for eventually English. So how, so it's already a gauntlet to run through, to get through. How do you run through that gauntlet? And then in your life, what made you pivot to medicine? And how do you think the engineering skill set and training serves you in, in, your, in your present role? Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting. I think, you know, you find out what you don't like in life more than, you know, and sends you on a different on different pathways. Um, electrical engineering was good. I mean, it, I mean, it, it gives you a skill set in terms of thinking about challenging problems and, and ways to solve problems. It, it clearly, uh, I have my MPH too and, and, and statistic, and I have a fairly reasonable statistical background and, and a lot of the math ends up being the same. Um, so that was kind of a nice ad, but, um, you know, it was just, uh, you know, the idea of sitting behind a computer for, or sitting at a computer screen, we do plenty of that now, you know, who knew, uh, who knew what was going to happen uh, in uh, 10 years in medicine, but, you know, now we spend a lot of our, all our time at computer screens, but it was uh, not what really, not really what, what I want to do. And I think, you know, the problem solving, um, the immediate, uh, immediate return on investment in patient care and surgery, I think, you know, it just, uh, you just can't beat that. It's just in terms of uh, the reward. Um, so probably is is more that you know I probably could have done electrical engineering be fine, but it's definitely not does not have the um, gravitas of uh, you know fixing a problem uh, 
and seeing a well patient uh, a few hours later, that's for sure. Yeah, not a lot of personal interaction necessarily in electrical engineering, I guess. Um, so another thing, you know, your, your area of expertise and kind of the, the, the area that you've really become, you know, world known for uh, really falls, uh, it, it, it strives across a lot of different disciplines, EGS, acute care surgery, elementary surgery. And when I look at kind of your, like your, your stuff on the website, you're a member of the elementary surgical society, AAST in East. And so there's this general, there's a lot of meetings, I guess is what I'm getting at and, and societal work that can be done to really build relationships and further your area of interest. How do you decide regardless of, you know, for me, it's vascular and trauma. How, tell me, how do I decide which meetings to go to and how do I balance all this? You can't go to everything, right? Yeah, you can't. You can't. Well, not. No, I don't know how uh, how your how well funded your medical school is, but uh, we uh, we don't get to go. We used to get to go to all the meetings, but that is not. Uh, even if you uh, even if you have the time uh, now, it's hard to afford to go to all the meetings. But um, yeah, I think you got. I think, but I think in acute care surgery, I think like you've done in in vascular. I think it's great to pick uh, a sort of area of expertise where you can interact across disciplines. Um, it makes uh, it makes acute care surgery that much more rewarding to have that sort of secondary um, area of interest, and and that's a part of why I like acute care surgery because it's still it's still general surgery, um, and you get to do a lot of uh, you just add do different things, especially as trauma becomes. Um, about, you know, old ladies that fall down on, on, uh, DOAX. Um, you know, we all know that, uh, situation. So, um, it just makes life a little bit more interesting and, and you just, and then picking and choosing, you gotta, I think, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't intentional, but you know, I've just cause of stuff, things I've published on and I've become sort of a billary tract kind of inter developed a billary tract interest and, uh, you know, and made friends in that in that realm, um, sages and SSAT and whatnot. So it's, uh, yeah, I think I think it's good. I think if you're going to be an academic acute care surgeon, it's definitely good to sort of mix uh, mix in different specialties a little bit. Yeah, I, I think for the old ladies, we just need to convince some people to do acute care surgery and nurse surgery. That'd be a long road to hope. <laughs> but, if we, <laughs> but if they could do it, we'd finally have another niche group. We tried that. It was tried uh, at one point in time, and then uh, the neurosurgeons weren't crazy about that idea. Wow, really? Well, I have to. I don't know that much about that history. We'll have to figure that out. Uh, the other thing I've always admired about you is we always have these committee meetings, and you're always um, managing to continue these communications and contributions. Sometimes from ski practice. I remember many, or at least a couple, where you've been in the car, looking like you're doing on a stakeout somewhere, and you're actually watching ski practice. So uh, your kids are a little bit older than mine. I have a, a two-year-old and I the one that literally came into the world five days ago. So give me advice if I'm going to continue or for people starting, right, with younger kids and they're going to have to grow into this academic realm or even if they're not academic, just general surgeon realm. What's, what's your tips for success to be a great dad and also a good surgeon? I don't know. Well, you have to ask my kids first, I guess, to find <laughs> out if I'm actually what kind of dad I am, but, uh, yeah, it's tough. It is really hard. You know, I mean, that's, a, that's, you know, we have to work life life balance and, and you got to do that kind of stuff. You got to sit in the car and, 
you know, you're watching C practice and, and, uh, you know, I, I can't tell you the number of times that I'm on a conference call and somebody tells you, yeah, I'm watching a baseball practice or, um, you yeah. know, watching soccer practice. Um, yeah, that's the, that's just the, the kind of the life we lead, I think. Um, but you gotta be involved. I mean, I guess it's everybody's a choice how you run your life. Um, but I couldn't imagine, um, you know, you've, you, I waited a little while. I think you waited a, a little longer than me to have the, <laughs> Yeah, I'm no. never going to be able to retire, Kevin, ever. Retirement's out. I'll be 70 by the time they're out of college. That's an approach, right? Wait till you're yeah. almost retired and then have yeah. your kids. That's uh, yeah. That's a good, that's a reasonable approach, maybe. Uh, that's what we should all yeah. be doing. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and we curse these phones, but the phones facilitates this stuff, right? You can be at ski practice and, and, and engage in these things when you have to. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's fun, but you can't, yeah, you got to, and um, yeah. Don't ever, but don't give up any of the, any part of it. You know, do it all because it's all worth it. Yeah. Well, sound advice from a, a sound, reasonable uh, man and someone who I've enjoyed working with. So thanks again for your time. Uh, Milos, do you want to buzz us out, buddy? Yes, sir. Uh, thank you so much to Dr. Schuster for his pearls of wisdom about the gallbladder and life in general. Uh, Dr. Bose, as always, leading us through our educational experience. We, we missed Dr. Rishi Kundi this week, but I'm sure he'll be able to join us next time. And to all our listeners, thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time on Tiger Country. Goodbye. You've been listening to Tiger Country. On behalf of Milos Bahavitz, Joe DeBose, and myself, thanks for joining us. And just in case, this doesn't count toward your CMEs, and please don't use this to study for your in-service. We'll be back soon.